Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to the podcast. We have a fantastic episode for you. Joining me is Commander Andrea Cameron, a military professor at the U.S. Naval War College. Commander Cameron and I discuss national security and climate change and what the U.S. military is currently doing in this area. We cover a lot of ground talking about other countries adapting to climate change and what that means for the U.S. This episode will open your eyes to what adaptation means to the overall issue of national security. Okay, so this is really cool news. America Adapts was nominated for Best Screen Podcast by iHeartRadio. This was totally unexpected, and I'm very humbled that an independent podcast like America Adapts was nominated. Go check out the other nominees in my show notes and stay tuned. They announced the winner on January 21st in a streaming virtual award ceremony. Very cool, and thanks again, iHeartRadio. Okay, we have started a bi-weekly newsletter here at America Daps. We highlight the latest episode and news and stories related to that episode's topic. We also highlight other climate podcasts and share a few other adaptation-related goodies. In the show notes, there is a link to subscribe. Please do. We have one last episode this year, and that's my fourth edition of the Year in Review. I have two outstanding guests joining me, Dr. Lad Keith, an urban planner at the University of Arizona, and Dakota Larrick, a graduate student in archaeology at the University of Oklahoma. We cover the most important climate stories of the year, and we dig into some of the year's past America Adapts episodes. I love doing these. Stay tuned. Okay, Adapters, let's join in with Commander Andrea Cameron of the U.S. Naval War College. Hey, Adapters. Today, I have a very exciting and important episode. My guest is Commander Andrea Cameron. Andrea is a permanent military professor in the National Security Affairs Department and the director of the Climate and Human Security Studies Group at the Naval War College. Hi, Andrea. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Doug. Well, Andrea, I'm very excited to have you on. This is a conversation I have not had enough on my podcast as well. You know, I, I think you, we've connected and you've been a listener for a while, but could you give us a little bit of background on who you are? Sure. I have been in the Navy for 24 years. I started out my career as a surface warfare officer. That's a ship driver in the Navy. And then I transitioned to be a human resources officer that specialized in training, education, and development. And then I got this amazing opportunity to be, as you said, a permanent military professor. And what that means is I get the chance to earn a doctorate and serve the rest of my active duty time as a professor at the U.S. Naval War College. So since I've explained where I work, I have to add the disclaimer that everything I say here is my own opinions and not those of the Naval War College, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. So the Naval War College, it's probably one of the most self-explanatory names for a school you can imagine. But could you explain what the Naval War College is? Sure. The primary mission of the Naval War College is to provide professional military education to mid and senior level officers. They get two opportunities in their career to kind of take a step out of their active duty roles and think about big strategic issues. And I teach in both curriculums to the intermediate officers. So if you're talking Army or Navy, that's like a major or lieutenant commander, and then to the senior class, and that's like colonels and captains. All right. So when I first started talking with you, I actually had to do a little bit of homework, and I, I thought I knew quite a bit about how the military schools worked. And could you just explain the difference, like the Naval Academy and the Air Force Academy? I mean, I know it's probably pretty obvious, but so, sometimes I, I guess there's some confusion. Sure. The service academies are a commissioning source. 
So you can enter the military by going, it's your undergraduate education. So four years at the Naval Academy, and then you graduate and you're commissioned into the Navy. The other option for commissioning is through Navy ROTC, and which is the program I went through. And I was a part-time Navy warrior at Marquette University. And that's how I entered the service upon graduation. And then we have other, these are master's level programs that are offered through the different professional military education institutions. And that's the war colleges in every service. Okay. And, and so you explain a little bit about who your students are, but I, I would like you to elaborate on that. And so these, this could be mid-career. It sounds like mid-officer class, but then senior officer class. And so th- the expectation when you're an officer is that you probably want to just have continuous learning when you're in the military. And so that's what they're doing with you. Absolutely. They get this opportunity when you're first commissioned, you have to learn whatever your field is. So if, as I said, I was a surface warfare officer, I had to go out and be on my ship, learn how to drive and fight and the engineering, everything about the ship. So it was a very tactical. It was very small scale kind of unit oriented. And that's your focus for almost your first four to eight years of your career. And then you kind of get into higher and higher levels of position. And they want you to have a general of understanding of all kinds of different things, not just the strategic picture, but the operational picture, because those are the jobs you'll go into as you grow as an officer. So we have these educational things, lifelong learning, just like everybody else. And and they take a pause in their career and get ready for the, the next level of command or the next level of staff job that they might have in their career path. Okay, I want to come back to the, some of the things that you're teaching, but I think it'd be good because we're talking about national security and climate change. It might seem obvious for a lot of people, but it probably means something different to you. But what is national security? National security is basically everything you do to protect your nation, your state. So it can include protecting your citizens, protecting your economy, protecting your institutions, anything that is existing within your borders. What do you have to do as a state to protect that? I guess the next follow up question is, how did you come to study climate change and national security? You're a professor at a naval war college. So those two issues came together for you. They did. There's two ways to look at this. A lot of countries, climate change is an existential national security issue for them. But for the United States, we look at it two ways. One, we operate globally with our forces. So because of that, national security issues for states around the world is going to have an implication for us. We have a lot of defense and alliances that might call upon us to interact with our allies and support them should they have some kind of climate related event that requires mutual support. And then we also just national security from our own homeland perspective. There's a variety of ways that now domestically we're seeing climate change impact us within the state itself. I want to get into the broader themes of climate change and national security, but now it's actually part of your curricula. How do you develop this within the, you know, I guess the classes that you're teaching and such? I teach an elective on climate change and national security. And the way I go about it is I teach the first third is about climate change so that the students will understand a basic vernacular. What's the basic science? Who's operating internationally in this space? What does the research say? How are international organizations and states coming together to to talk about it and work on the issue? And then the latter two thirds of the course is all of the corresponding human security threats. You know, I look at water, food, health, population, migration and humanitarian response. 
climate change is this emerging issue. It's an emerging issue for natural resources. Obviously, the military is starting to think about it. But I hear from you, and I am very, uh, I, I guess, encouraged that you know it, it's being taught at the Naval War College, but it's an elective. Do you feel like we're going to head into that situation where this is not going to be just an elective, but this is going to be required coursework for that next generation of military officers? I do think that's probably the future. It's just too big of a a global threat for us not to start embedding it. And that's the real question is how do we start including this in the broader curriculum, not just at the Naval War College, but for all of the officers at all of the different service schools to start thinking about this security threat going forward. All right. And so you are a professor and I guess a lot of people in the military don't necessarily have this luxury of just sitting back and reflecting and pondering, well, pondering, maybe not the right word, but here is climate change. And it was this emerging issue. And you've had this chance to kind of think about it. And you're starting to focus on adaptation and just it, it as a broader national security threat. Maybe you could tell me about that process. What were, I guess, some key moments for you? Because you've been teaching for a while. I have been teaching for a while. I actually started getting into this because my my doctoral research was in humanitarian assistance particularly civil military coordination. I found it fascinating that in moments of crisis, uh, military organizations and humanitarian organizations, kind of very polar opposite types of groups, would work together for a common goal. And another intriguing piece of humanitarian assistance is, you know, military members who get to do these types of missions usually will refer to it as one of the most rewarding things they've done in their career. So I was just totally intrigued by humanitarian assistance, and that's how I started getting into this. Then I realized just by definition, humanitarian response means that the crisis has already happened. And as a policy person, I pretty early on wanted to explore what are our options not to reach that point? How can we build resilience? How do we adapt? Plan for changes that might be existential threats and then create policies that get in front of those oncoming issues. So that's what got me looking closer and closer and closer to climate change. You've been thinking about it for a while. In my own experience, uh, I work with in natural resources and wildlife conservation, and we started thinking about it like in the early aughts. And then when I worked for the National Park Service in you know 2009, 2010, we were I was dealing with some military folks, but there wasn't a lot of thinking. And I, I look looking back now, I guess the natural resource sector for whatever reason, really started to ponder what, what this might mean for how they do things. And like the military's ramping their efforts up big time, or maybe not big time. <laughs> maybe not big time, but we did really, if you go back to the Clinton administration, there was some environmental security okay. pieces of the Office of the Secretary of Defense. And then around 2009, the Navy actually started it with Task Force Climate Change led by our meteorology and oceanography community. And they started building some of our first initial roadmaps and directives on climate change. All right. So you have to think about climate change and national security holistically. And so how do you frame up DOD's activities on climate change? I've picked some of the biggest issues and, and started to kind of lay them out in an outline. There isn't one place within the DOD, not one office that kind of brings all climate related pieces together. So I, you know, when I first started looking at this, I started exploring who does what and how can I get a bigger picture? The really obvious one that we've been looking at the longest is looking at defense infrastructure and our bases. We have to consider, you know, sea level rise, recurrent flooding, droughts, wildfires, desertification, permafrost thaw, and this is something that Congress, no matter which side of the aisle you are on, has interest in knowing and understanding, because those are big, expensive things to fix and get right in the future. Less obvious, but connected to that, is the implications for training and readiness. 
So damage to our training ranges, equipment, redirecting troops to support FEMA, interruptions in our training cycle that, you know, gets ready, troops ready to deploy. Any kind of extreme weather or climate related event can have a significant impact on the military's ability to be ready for our normal rotational cycle or in a surge capacity. So there's an issue of readiness and, you know, impact on facilities and such. But I guess when I when it comes to, I guess, more military response, more, I guess, immediate military threat. And you've listened to it. I had Judge Alice Hill on a couple of times. And one of the conversations we had was and when she was a National Security Council, that the situation in Syria because of, you know, water resources and all these sort of things, you're having a movement of people. And then all of a sudden there's an actual military threat with things kind of unraveling there. Is that. Because she was in the National Security Council, but was that sort of thinking starting to happen at DOD that the actual military threat is there? That's probably where we have the most area to grow. And there's a lot of different ways to look at this. What is the operational impacts of, you know, us doing more humanitarian response missions out of around the world? What's the impacts of us doing more humanitarian response type missions, even within the homeland? What's the operational impact of now having to go up into the Arctic and having that as a new area of competition? And then what you were mentioning with the with Alice Hill and the Syria example, you know, all the countries around the world are going to deal with climate change in their own way. So it will affect what we call kind of global power competition. You know, how are we competing with China and Russia? And will also affect you know all the other countries in the world and their own various states of fragility. You had mentioned the Arctic, and I probably want to come back to that, too. But so we're actually seeing the impacts of climate change even today. There are threats and there's things that are happening today. It's not just a, a future issue. And so how is the military responding? And is it more it's just planning now or are there actual issues and you know, policies changing because what is happening on the ground now? There's not a lot of policies changing. There is an increasing awareness that it needs to be part of our calculus um, but we're still figuring out how to incorporate that into our existing planning. And so what about you? I think you have I wasn't quite clear if I understood this right. So any branch can come to the Naval War College and take classes, right? Absolutely. We have joint officers from the Army, Navy, Air Force, Space Force. That's Space Force, right? <laughs> the, the Marine Corps and the Coast Guard and and actually civilians from a lot of DOD and other agencies around the world. And about a quarter of our students are international officers. Well, that is a future episode. How is the Space Force responding to climate change? But we won't go down that path right now. My question related to that is you as a professor and you're thinking about this is how are the different branches doing? Is anyone sort of assessing like, all right, the army's really got their act together on this, but you know, the coast guard, not so much. And I'm just throwing those out. I'm not, I'm not making any assessments there, but is it at that level of understanding of who's getting more ready for this emerging threat? That's a great question. I would say the coast guard is actually way out in front because they're just always on the operational lines right around the homeland. So they see it. They live it every day. The Army is out in front. I, I mentioned in defense infrastructure, and they actually just came out with the Army Climate Assessment Tool, which is the tool that we're probably going to adopt for all of the services of how to assess the vulnerability of our bases. And they kind of break it out. The Navy, to me, is the probably the most forward leaning on climate change in the Arctic. And as well as starting with the task force climate change in 2009, just being the ones thinking strategically and forward leaning about that. 
All right. And on that note, so how does climate change affect the security around the world? And if you think about sort of mentioned with the Arctic, because, you know, China, Russia and maybe just some fragile states, what are some other issues that we need to start thinking about? In the military right now, the, the big context is looking at global power competition or particularly China and Russia. And the big takeaway with climate change is how are they going to change their behavior around the world based on how it's impacting them? If you'd like, I could go into great detail. About that. <laughs> well, let me let's, let's have a little back and forth here. Okay. And I guess on that note, you are there to understand how the Department of Defense works, how the U.S. military works. Are there other countries or, you know, is, is China doing really well on climate change planning in their military? I mean, that's something that I guess our military needs to know, right? This is probably what we we, we do research on and I don't know, spying. I don't want to necessarily use that word, but how are other countries doing on it? Other countries are actually uh, much more forward leaning on figuring out how climate change is going to affect them and their their own national security. There's less of a debate in many other countries about, you know, the science and they are living it and breathing it. So they they're all in and that you can see it within their own national security strategies, et cetera, how they are building into their national security portfolio some kind of climate risk assessment. So do we cooperate with them in any way? Is there any sort of learning? Because I know different militaries, sometimes they visit each other and such. Are we or are we doing any of that in regards specifically to climate change learning? Not to my knowledge. Oh boy. Okay. That's probably going to change in the near future. So let's talk a, a bit more about some of the global players around climate change, like Russia and China. Can you give some more background on what can we expect in that area? Sure. Russia in general they do have a lot of vulnerabilities when it comes to climate change. You know, they have their own permafrost melting, increase of wildfires, and they have a myriad of historic and, and current environmental problems. But largely from their perspective, a changing climate might mean more net gains. They're a petrol state and they have an economy that's built on those kind of interests. So they might benefit from agriculture shifting north or the Arctic waters opening up for exploitation and commercial traffic. We have to really examine what's in their interests and in driving them to address climate change. And it, it's probably not the same sense of urgency that you see from other countries. Basically, warming will be good for them and they don't care if the warming happens. It'll be interesting to see how much they try and engage on the Paris Climate Accords. Yes. Interesting. And any other sort of countries that are, uh, you know, maybe, you know, you think of like oil countries like Saudi Arabia that, you know, they, they have a vested interest in fossil fuels, but Russia and China are the ones that our U.S. military is probably thinking more about. Yes, we're definitely thinking about China. That's our number one focus right now. And from Chinese perspective, you know, their own policy documents, they consider themselves one of the most vulnerable countries in the world to climate change. I mean, they have the largest developing economy, one of the largest populations, not enough of their own internal energy resources, and their environment is so fragile already. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking at, you know, what is China thinking? Could they be having some kind of strategic climate adaptation foreign policy? What would they be doing in that context? Because they haven't really announced that this is what they're doing. They're planning for a changing climate. However, they are buying wide swaths of land for agriculture around the world. They're establishing a fishing fleet that can fish globally. They're doing science and research around the Arctic and Antarctic. They're securitizing their resources in the South China Sea. They're developing their own alternative energy at home, and they're making that a priority. 
So while they haven't announced that they're adapting to climate realities in this kind of global foreign policy way, what they're doing is actually quite profound in seeing the changing climate and acting accordingly. Now, that's very interesting. As I listen to that, I think, wow, they're acting rationally and they're looking out in the best interests of China, which might not always be in the best interests of the United States. But is, is that an accurate portrayal? They're just acting rationally in the face of a changing climate. I think so. Rationally and strategically. And just to make a little kind of commentary, while we're here debating the science, they're executing huge components of the strategic approach. And they're probably about 10 years ahead of us in thinking and acting on this part of the security dynamic. So we have failed to recognize that this is part of strategic competition. We largely don't understand the implications of how they use their diplomatic and economic instruments of power differently than we do to address the problem. So we're probably underestimating their progression in this field and their aggression. And unfortunately, we don't have our own similar strategy where we're planning towards this particular element of competition. So I can't say how comprehensive or intentional or coherent the Chinese planning is, but you could say that at a minimum, they're they're leaning in or forward thinking. And at the other end of the spectrum, you might assess that they have gone so far ahead of us that we might have lost a battle that we didn't even realize we were in. Wow, that that's very sobering. I get this impression there's strategic thinkers within DOD who look at these kind of things, and it sounds like there isn't. And when we talk about military weapons or something, you hear, oh, well, our our fighter planes are next generation, and we're 20 years ahead from the next, you know, whatever. And what you're you're saying here when it comes to our response to climate change, they could be a, a generation ahead, and we let that happen. Yes, when you define your your security based on your number of platforms or your number of missiles, et cetera, you're missing a big part of the equation. And I think they have a better grasp on that. And while they're not being very public about it, their actions speak louder than words about what they're doing about it to make their own climate secure future. What will be interesting, and maybe this is a future conversation, you'd use the word aggression. So when they're adapting to climate change, some of it might just manifest itself as like, okay, they're taking benign actions even domestically, but they're taking other actions that they consider adapting to climate change, but it's at the detriment of maybe other countries. And so that's more aggressive adaptation. I, I don't think I've heard that term before, but that's sort of what you're describing. And it's, it's another way to view it. It's probably not how they would characterize it. But if you look at their actions, you could see that kind of behavior. And as resources get more constrained in the future, there's no reason if they have those established footprints, land rights, et cetera, that they could be more aggressive about it in the future. Again, back to the Arctic, there, there probably is a bit more cooperation among countries, right? Yes, there's a lot of cooperation, even within the militaries, between the Arctic countries, except for Russia. Okay, and is there, is it just the sort of natural animosity between the countries? That's why Russia is not participating? Not necessarily. It, it is actually just part of current DOD policy that we do not talk to Russia on issues without prior approval, and this Arctic cooperation is in that category. Oh, interesting. 
right, I want to go. This is put on really putting on your professor hat, and we'll see if the, you're comfortable answering these. But I was thinking about climate change, and I've been doing it for a long time, and it's an urgent priority for me, but it's not an urgent priority for everyone. And I was thinking about the military and how does the military actually prioritize a threat? I don't know if you can even give us a superficial kind of answer to that, and we can kind of go into what climate change might mean. That's a really good question. We primarily look at threats, uh, states, other states. You know, if you think of national security as my state and your state, and you have that mindset about security, then other states are the threats. China, Russia, Iran, North Korea. And then after 9-11, we did have to broaden it to include non-state actors like the terrorist organizations. Usually we are prioritizing how those state and non-state actors can influence us or or have an impact with us. And that's why you don't see a lot of non-traditional security issues in, in that mix. And the DOD really hasn't fully open their aperture for other types of threats in that calculation. When I think about terrorism, the the U.S. military spends a lot of money to, you know, we we have bases everywhere and we've spent a a lot of money. And so I'm not making any statement on should they be doing that or not. It's it's more of a reflection. They prioritize this. And so to get to me, like elevating the issue of climate change to something that we do think it's an emerging threat and there might be some kind of work around the corners. How does it make that transition into being an urgent threat. And I'm just curious more about just the inner workings of DOD on how they, you know, there's, you guys do a lot of scenario planning or is the sort of outcomes of those exercises sort of saying, you know what, we really do have to elevate this. It's hard to elevate non-traditional or non-emergent things that you're seeing when you have emergent things right in front of you. Mm. You know, China is building up the South China Sea. And, you know, even though everyone sees us as having a very large budget, we also have a very large mandate of all of the things we have to be looking at. So there has not been a lot of resources applied to looking at climate change in particular within the DOD. When you look at and so a lot of people get their climate change news just from the popular media. And it's really has still it's been in the domain of sort of environmentalism, environmental groups. But it's going in other sectors, you know, the you know, we've got extreme storm events, extreme heat events. And when you look at the extreme, uh, I guess, predictions of climate change, lots of people starving, movement of people. These are all issues that are just very serious. And when I I'm trying to just imagine planners at DOD, when they see this stuff, they're not, you know, immune to seeing this stuff. Do they think, okay, this is just exaggeration. This isn't based on actual real scenario planning and such. And I hope that's making sense because there are people who are making the case that it truly is this massive, massive threat, maybe even a bigger threat than terrorism. If you think about people who are going to die or displacement of people, how does that sort of narrative, I guess, capture the attention of the military? That's a great question, and it kind of comes down to whether you use the military instrument of power to address the symptoms of something or the cause. And usually we don't come into something until a crisis has already hit. So we're using our other instruments of power, like our economic, our diplomacy, our development aid, our humanitarian aid, to be looking at how to help states who are trying to deal with some of those other things, which is why the military in general, until it has hit a crisis situation, is not involved in those types of scenarios. 
Okay. So it's more, the U.S. military is more reactive than necessarily proactive in, on these sort of, those non-traditional threats. And I'm not going to say the U.S. military, the U.S. government. Okay, okay. <laughs> the military is an extremely expensive tool to use. So you're not going to, even though we're large and we're big and we're around the world, it's the tool of last resort. To me, I've probably just seen way too many movies and in respect to like the U.S. military. All right. They're going to keep us from really making bad decisions if it's a nuclear threat or something like that. And so looking at, OK, what does because the scientists are now saying these things. OK, what one degree will mean in regards to temperature rise and all sorts of impacts. Two degrees means that three degrees and four is just really bad. Are you hearing any conversations where people are actually looking at that sort of global average temperature rise as metrics to take action? Is that happening anywhere? Not globally as much. The most you hear about it is really the, the impacts in the Arctic and the sea ice every year and how that's going to change what's open and what needs to be securitized in the Arctic. I want to talk again about the fragile stage. You had mentioned that earlier. Could you elaborate on, on, on some of the other things going on there? Well, I think this is one area where we're getting a lot of traction. We had the Global Fragility Act passed last year, and that's between Department of State, USAID, and the Department of Defense. And it's the first time we're really thinking uh, and we start to get to include destabilizing factors like climate and other issues into state fragility. And we're looking out further long term about what that means for us in the future. So what keeps you up at night and related to climate change? What If you think about all the impacts and all the things that are going on, what sort of keeps you up at night? That's a great question. You know, I told you in my class that I break it down kind of water, food, health and migration. When you look at all of them separately, you know, water, water, you could be concerned about water scarcity around the world or water, food, energy nexus. But in general, there's been a lot of cooperation around water instead of competition. So I'm not as worried about that. Food, we're pretty assured that with technology, we can meet the food needs of a growing population. Health, yes, health can cause a crisis like it is right now, but we can develop tools and we have strategies to address that. So the big thing that keeps me up at night is the migration factor. And I think as you continue to look at climate change over the century and some of the long-term trends, Migration is going to be one of the biggest issues around the world. How Again, you, we've chatted a little bit, but how does that manifest itself? How is that a threat? Is It's just sort of destabilizing those governments and the U.S. military might have to play a role in stabilizing those governments? I think it is very destabilizing and the U.S. military may or may not be called because it might come and, and affect the United States directly, but it was definitely going to affect our allies throughout the world. And this really pushes up against the fundamental premises of our, our liberal values. If we believe then human rights and that everyone is equal and you have, you should have democratic representative government, when you have a flood of people that coming from other countries, you have to decide what to do with them and how they fit in to your own country. So what happens when your city just tripled in size because of migration? Do you welcome those people? Do they learn your language? Do you have to learn theirs? Do they assimilate into your culture? Do they take your jobs? Uh, do you give your social safety net to support them? Do you make them citizens? Do you treat them as equals and let them vote and participate in your government? These are really, really fundamental questions of our current allies are having to deal with primarily in, in Europe. And I'm not defending protectionism, 
but I'm identifying the tension around the world that's going to push our liberal values of human rights and democracy to the limits. So as I keep studying the subject and asking what will we have to adapt to in the future, to me, migration, the challenge it poses to our liberal values and the potential for destabilization is a huge question yet to be thoroughly explored. Well, have you in your studying, I'm, I'm curious because the climate migration is just getting a lot of attention. And then the whole issue of managed retreat has because there's actually going to be quite a bit of migration, even domestically. And I know the military doesn't get involved. Let's just keep hoping that that's the case. But ultimately, if there is a large move of people internally, just I'm more curious to your own personal, I guess, understanding of the issue. Could is that destabilizing if, you know, we have lots of people from the coast that are moving around internally? It's just that would never be something that the military would really get involved in. Well, there are laws and rules that say the military should not be operating domestically to leave it some open space. That's what we have the National Guard for. And they're there in support, of course, of all local law enforcement. They're, again, the last resort for helping out in those kind of situations. It's more of speculation. If you have millions of people moving from the coast, you know what? Of course, it would be limited role for the government. But that is a destabilizing force to that country and be it the United States or some other country. It's just it'll be interesting what mechanisms within countries are going to be up for the task, I guess, of managing that movement. And you mentioned managed retreat. I think in general that managed retreat by definition is managed. <laughs> I think the greater threat is probably like an extreme weather event that that will like take out a city and then you have a mass migration all at once. That's probably much more destabilizing. I want to go back to the issue of carbon, though. And as we pump more into the atmosphere and that you can I mean, they're pretty good now saying if we pump X amount, we're going to probably see this much warming. And then you can create metrics of because we know it's going to destabilize countries. We know it's going to destabilize agriculture across the world. Do you ever see, again, this is you speculating, do you ever see a, a time when the military is interested in, all right, releasing carbon in the atmosphere is a threat? Or is that just too removed? It's too, you can count on more of the sort of State Department and the other actors involved. But if there's really no response to limiting carbon into the atmosphere, and we know it's going to lead to all these destabilizing effects, it seems, I mean, there, there should be some interest there. I think you're onto something. And I think it's actually something we think about probably more from a business perspective. Our reliance on fossil fuels as a military is actually one of our critical vulnerabilities. So from within the military, we're much more interested in exploring alternative resources, et cetera, because then we don't ha we are more sustainable in an operational framework. I'm not a military expert, but and I'll qualify that. But is climate denial a national security threat? In my estimation, it is. But what are your thoughts on that? Well, if I were a military officer and I were looking at my future strategic environment, I would want as much information as I could have about that operational environment. And of course, climate is a significant piece of that, especially as things get worse going forward. So the one thing I would definitely want is intelligence and our own intelligence community repeatedly in our national intelligence estimates and our global trends reports, as well as our own military intelligence continue to report information about climate. And that would probably inform me that that's something at least I would have to seriously consider when figuring out how to operate strategically around the world. 
So we're going to do a pivot here, and you are arranging a conference coming up really soon. It's going to be in January of 2021. Let's talk about that a bit. So what's the conference covering? So I've decided to have a conference at the Naval War College called the National Security Significance of a Changing Climate, Risk and Resilience in the 21st Century. And the purpose of the event is to start putting together some of the people who are working and operating in this space and think about it. What does a changing climate mean for the United States strategically? And then the audience is is national security practitioners. What does it mean for all of them in their own individual jobs? So we'll be having this conference on January 8th, 2021, and it will include panels on global power competition, fragile states, domestic response, defense infrastructure, and then competition in the oceans or the blue economy. Now, there will be plenty of people listening to this episode long after the event has passed. Is there going to be any recording of material? Or is there people going to be able to access it after the fact? Absolutely. Everything is open for public use and academic use. One thing I have as a professor in this is there's not a lot of materials that talk about climate and security that you can pull from if you want to teach more people or even if you're just an interested person who wants to learn themselves. So part of my goal with this event and then further on is to start developing those materials more and more so that national security practitioners have something they can go to. Do I want to learn about global power competition and the changing climate? Hey, here's a, a half hour segment where some of the biggest speakers in the world are going to give you an introduction to that subject. And if they do hear this before and they want to participate, anyone, you don't have to be in the, the military. Anyone can register and, and participate. Anyone can register and participate. And if you'd like, I can give you the registration link. Don't worry. I'll include it in the show notes and everything. Those five panels that you just described, that is your take on this important issue. So if, so if people want to kind of understand at least what you're thinking, and that probably represents what a lot of people are thinking at the DOD, those are the five kind of key areas right now around climate change and national security, right? Yeah, especially the first four, global power competition, fragile states, domestic response, and defense infrastructure. The competition in the oceans, that's a Navy type one, but there's a lot of interest in that subject as well. All right. And you are the first academic institution to put on such a conference? We are. There's been several working groups or smaller closed events over the years. But I'm like I said, the intent of this conference is to start making material available to a broader audience. I really think it's important. You'd mentioned the, these five key areas. I think even people outside the military would probably benefit. This is this is your, your worldview. You're thinking around the issue and people who might be even urban planners and such if they're not dealing with national security issues. But it, it's a worldview on climate change. Are you planning to maybe write some pieces after this, even after the conference and such? There will be a conference report where I summarize the findings. OK, great. You've got these five areas, but how are you framing the overall conference? So within each of those areas, I really want to explore the continuous evolution. You know, political leadership comes and goes, changes. But really within the institutions, if we're looking at defense infrastructure, that's not something that changes a lot by by institution. So there's a continuity of effort up through to today. And we've had challenges and opportunities. So that continuity of effort is one thing that we're We have people representing administrations going back to the Clinton administration. And then the timing of it is rather fortunate in that we almost have, you know, we're we're in a transition. It's almost a parlor game. It's a what if. What if can we do in the future? 
in this wide open landscape. None of the appointments have been set. We don't know where we're going, but we have some of the best experts on this subject and they'll talk and lead us into what are the questions of the future and how can we internalize those both in our jobs and in our perception of security. There's another piece of this. I I learn when I teach climate change, and I'm sure many of your listeners and fellow speakers would relate. When you have students who are learning about this for the first time, it can be really overwhelming and they get really depressed and they're just almost helpless. What can I do about this? So another piece of the conference is really to be somewhat optimistic it's empowering. What can, what have we done, which is quite a lot, and what more can we do? So I really hope that all of these incredible speakers that are coming to this event lay the groundwork for what can we do in the future? How can we be inspired to do whatever it is within our respective areas of responsibility? And, and we've mentioned Alice Hill several times now, and she's going to be one of your keynote speakers, right? Absolutely. Go for the best. <laughs> right, right. Um, small world, right? In the national security and climate change. Well, that's fantastic. And you, you'd mentioned, I'm assuming uh, you have the elective course on climate change. Are you integrating your students in any way with the conference or is this sort of a required thing as you head into the spring semester? How, how are your students involved? No, that's a great question. I teach my in-resident elective during the winter, so the timing of it is coincidental for the transition. It's actually more of a scheduling timing with the students in my class, but it is a fortunate timing either way. All right. And before we get, I guess, toward the end of this discussion around, I, I want to talk about transitions and such, but just a, a few more things about your class. I'm curious. It's an elective, and so People that are taking the course are, they're, it's sort of a filtering process. These, these are people who are interested in learning more about climate change. And, but what, what have you learned from your students? How's that process been for you? I mean, they're out there, uh, you know, they might be located in different parts of the world, but any, any good discussions with students around this issue? I have amazing discussions with students. It's why I teach the course both in resident, but I also teach it through our College of Distance Education. We have Naval War College students around the country. And with that, I get interagency students and civilians, a lot more Coast Guard. So they all have their own kind of tactical operational experience with something climate related. And it's almost always opening my eyes to another place where people are getting hit. You might have heard that, you know, all climate is local. People view climate locally. And to hear all of their individual stories really it's almost reassuring how many people are personally affected and want to do something and learn more about climate change. Boy, I'd love to be a wallflower in some of those discussions. And <laughs> it must be a challenge as a professor, too. And, and this is changing quickly. But a lot of times when environmental groups or conservation groups are trying to explain the issue of climate change, it's hard to bring it down from that sort of esoteric. Oh, well, here's all these threats to on the ground action, like you just said, local. And, you know, I'm sure your students are like, well, how is this relevant to my specific duties in this position? And that sometimes probably is a challenge. And I think that's changing quickly because of we're seeing more direct impacts. How do you marry those two conflicting issues when it comes to like, how do you make this relevant to them? In general, a small portion of the class is making sure they understand the basic concepts and actors so that, you know, if they hear a story about food or the World Health Organization, they they understand what those roles are and what those actors are trying to do. But in general, most of the class is letting every single student explore a paper or a topic of their own choosing. And it doesn't matter if they want to choose an area of the world, a specific country, something that relates to their service, like the Navy or the Army, 
something that relates to their community, like a ship or their aircraft platform, because a lot of those communities are getting affected in different ways. Or if it's something they want to pursue personally, you know, maybe they see something within their hometown or they have, you know, a lot of the discussion right now is, is about how racial issues and climate issues go together. So I don't care what the subject is. If it touches the con- course content and it means something to them, take this opportunity to deep dive into it and then pull something out of this course that is really meaningful to you. And that's how you get, you know, for people, more and more people to understand climate change, it's going to have to be personalized. So that's my approach to teaching the class. Oh, cool. I wish I could take one of your classes, but <laughs> I missed that window. All right. Some big changes are coming with the with the U.S. government and the Department of Defense. And I'm sure, you know, I'm not quite sure how it affects the academic institutions, but we have a new administration coming in. You know, President-elect Joe Biden. Some people are going to listen to this and the, he'll be President Biden. But let's talk briefly about what that might mean. So, listen, it's I don't think it's getting political at all by saying Climate change is going to be more prioritized within a Biden administration than it has been in Trump administration. Could you speak to that? Well, I can ex- speak to it kind of from a policy perspective sure. and, and what I see changing. To date your thing, they just announced John Kerry as the new climate envoy when and made that a National Security Council position. So he kind of has this, again, a cabinet level position to even have him doing it, taking a step from being secretary of state and now being, in essence, promoted, you're not going to take a, a, a lower position. So that tells you how important it is going to be within the Biden administration. There's been no Department of Defense nominees yet, but we do know that the Biden administration is kind of putting climate ambition as one of their things they want to see in all of their appointees in any of the departments. So I expect that across the interagency and within the DOD, we will see more people who are trying to figure out how to incorporate climate change into their own respective organizational roles. Glad you brought up the John Kerry thing. And, and yeah, most probably Americans don't realize, but the, the different positions. But like you said, that's sending a really strong signal that reports directly to President Biden. And that, that I guess that's really important when you try to think, because sometimes these positions get buried, even though you think it's being prioritized. So, yeah, I think that was a very strong signal. I guess with some of the other people that are coming out, I, I don't know if you caught it's Ron Klain who's going to be his chief of staff. I think his mm-hmm. and. I, I saw, you know, climate change is very big with him, and he actually wrote a piece, I think it was with the Washington Post last year, Climate Change and Pandemics. And there you go, the chief of staff to the president-elect is deeply thinking around these issues. So I find that very encouraging. Just to forecast a little, if I if I did look forward into the DOD, one, I think climate and stability and how we're looking at those issues around the world is going to get a lot more attention. I also think the energy consumption with the DOD is probably also going to get a lot more con- attention. And again, this is, is not news or controversial to anyone. Just climate change has not been a priority for the Trump administration. And I'm sure that reflects, as you've been saying in this episode, or in, even in the DOD, and uh, I guess, how has it penetrated into policies and such? That will likely change a lot. Will there be a big demand for classes like yours? Will you have to now teach it two or three times a semester? I mean, there's probably going to be a mad scramble with a lot of people to catch up on national security and climate change, right? Probably. Yes. <laughs> Probably. 
I think the bigger question is is going to be not necessarily just my class to reach bigger right, audiences. Right. You're going to have to figure out how to put it into the service schools and the other PME institutions. Right. I didn't. I don't want to imply that it, all the climate learning comes through your class. That's not. The, no, uh, <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't mind that. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, but again, I I think there will be because it's probably just been an issue that like, you know what? I don't need to worry about this right now, but, but there's going to be a, a hopefully a huge demand of interacting maybe with other agencies around this and just a, a real learning curve over the next 12 months. That actually is probably pretty exciting. You know, you can bake in some some changes within DOD and the different branches on how they're thinking about climate change. And so like, I'm assuming all these big things will happen during the Biden administration, but some things have been happening during the Trump administration. Can you share those? Sure. There there hasn't been a lot of talk directly about climate change. You see a lot of euphemisms come up, uh, global change, environmental security, environmental degradation, resilience, kind of buzzwords where you're circling around, still looking at the impact of a changing climate. But what's been really interesting, even in the last couple of years, is Congress has actually put more and more DOD reporting requirements looking at climate change. And that's something that for the last three National Defense Authorization Acts, we've had different requirements put upon us. And in fact, last year, they even included for the intelligence community, they set up the the Climate Security Advisory Council. And that's currently in the works of figuring out how to look at climate and security and building an infrastructure for climate related issues. So even during the Trump administration, as I said, there's a continuity of effort that is and understanding and approaching climate and incorporating it into our understanding of the threat seems to grow and grow and grow. And I guess, though, just more consequential, though, as you mentioned way earlier, just the sort of soft approaches to dealing with this issues, different air diplomacy and everything. And so signing back onto the Paris Climate Agreement, I, hopefully in the long term, that's beneficial for the DOD because it means that those, I guess, sectors of government are, are interacting on trying to solve the problem. Well, like we said earlier, the DOD doesn't get involved until, you know, we've reached some kind of crisis situation usually. So if it can be handled by any of the other uh, pieces of government prior to reaching that point, then it's a win. We've been dealing with a pandemic, and I'm sure this is just even as a professor in the areas that you deal with is probably just a very interesting thing for you to see how the United States has responded. What have you learned? Has it influenced your thinking at all in regards to national security and climate change just in our response to the pandemic? That's a really interesting question. I think my biggest takeaway is how politicized certain scientific issues can be. You know, the masks, contract tracing, testing. These are standard protocols within the medical field that have existed for decades. We've known how to deal with this. And yet now, for some reason, it's been politicized how you deal with a pandemic. And I think it has a lot of parallels to how we see climate. So I'm, I kind of keep waiting, unfortunately, as the pandemic continues to get worse, seeing if eventually science will take over the narrative. And that's something for, that I watch because you could make that comparison to climate as well. Eventually, science may take over the narrative and things like skeptics and deniers might have less traction and and they can more process and figure out what do we do about this. Well, I think just political leadership allows science to take over the narrative and sort of the leadership role there, too. That plays a large role in all this. And you can see that in other countries. And 
how many of them are back to normal. So this has been a fantastic conversation. What I just want to end with is you've got this conference coming up, but l- let's talk about your mid to long term goals. You're you're getting more into this space. What what do you what do you hope to do in in regards to this issue over the next six months, over the next twelve months? What are your goals? Well, I kind of alluded to this. I want more and more educational content available to people who are interested in the subject and the intersection of climate and security. So within the Naval War College, within the other DOD institutions, I do speaking engagements. So whatever I can do to broaden the audience of who wants to think about how security is going to be affected by the changing climate, I'm happy to talk to them and kind of make connections so that I can keep broadening this circle and expanding the topic and awareness. In the next three to six months, you are going to be in high demand in many different ways that you probably can't even predict. So I think that's a very encouraging thing. You've been a listener to the podcast for a while, and I greatly appreciate it. I think that's super cool. And you probably know what's coming. If you could recommend anyone to be on the podcast, who would it be? Well, I would recommend Rear Admiral Retired Ann Phillips. Um, She had a long, distinguished Navy career, but... Her, she finished her career in the Hampton Roads, Virginia area and saw sea level rise, extreme weather events, sunny day flooding, all within that and how it impacted the region. So since she's retired, she has been on kind of sea level rise preparedness groups, resilience groups, and she's now employed as a special assistant to the governor of Virginia for coastal adaptation and protection. And if you're looking for someone who would be a great speaker on how military installations and state and local governments and private industry are working together to adapt to climate change, I think she'd be a really excellent speaker for the podcast. Well, I've heard of her before, and I think that the fact that she's retired allows her to, to, I guess, say what's on her mind, right? Absolutely. Excellent, excellent recommendation. And are you connected? Are you do you do you know her? I do, and she's one of the speakers at my upcoming conference as well. Okay, well, maybe you can help make a. It's always easier to if someone has a connection with the person, so that'd be great. Happy to do that for you. All right, Andrea, this has been fantastic. This has been a journey. I barely scratched the surface when it comes to national security and climate change. And I'm glad we had this conversation and I'm hoping you and I can stay in touch. And if you have ideas and you have advisement, suggestions for guests ongoing, let's keep up that relationship. But thanks for what you're doing and thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. I already told you it's one of my favorite podcasts. I'm so glad everyone's out there listening to the end with me. And thanks so much for for graciously agreeing to speak with me today. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Commander Cameron for coming on the show. I have obviously just scratched the surface on national security issues. That was a fascinating conversation for me and somewhat sobering. Another thing to consider is the geopolitical maladaptation that might occur. Maladaptation, if you're not familiar, basically means climate adaptations that could have negative impacts outside its original purpose. So, for example, a coastal community could armor its coastline at the detriment of natural systems on either side of the armoring, hence maladaptation. So when another country is adapting to climate change in their own interests, it could have negative consequences for other countries. We're seeing this play out in the Arctic right now. I think we look at adaptation too benignly, myself included, thinking it's just our attempts at adapting to climate impacts. But the impacts of other nations adapting might even have worse consequences for other countries. It obviously gets complicated very fast. I'm very encouraged to see thought leaders like Commander Cameron thinking about these things, but I'm also very concerned how behind the U.S. government is thinking on the subject. 
The fact that we debate the basic science of climate change is a huge problem for national security. And other nations like Russia, and especially China, exploit that weakness and that uncertainty. We'll waste another decade just debating the seriousness of the issue unless things change. So if you're interested in highlighting your adaptation work via podcasts, think about using America Adapts. Sponsoring a podcast allows you to focus on the work you're doing and sharing with climate professionals from around the world. I normally connect with folks at conferences and meetings, but that has been shut down for the last year. So definitely reach out to me directly if you have some ideas for this type of episode. That's how I keep the lights running. So maybe your organization wants to highlight the great work you're doing. Email me at americadaps at gmail.com. So most of you have heard me talk about the work I'm doing at Simpatico Studios. And folks, I am still full steam ahead, and we've got a big 2021 plan. I'm hosting live talk shows on the Climate Adaptation Channel. I'm interviewing climate adaptation experts, clean energy entrepreneurs, and academics from around the world. And it's a whole channel dedicated to climate change, which is super cool. The team at Simpatico has me booked through the spring, interviewing some of the most interesting people in this space. So definitely go check out the platform. And yes, it's free. A link is in the show notes or just go to Simpatico and that's with a C, C-I-M-P-A-T-I-C-O.com and sign up. There's a huge archive of interviews on every topic imaginable. So go check it out. Some final housekeeping. Don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but just search for America Daps and ask to join and I'll prove you right away. It's a chance to hear some insider info and to see what others are sharing on the wall. On that note, I love hearing from you. Take the time to email me just to say who you are. And if you're in the field, let me know what you do. This is very valuable. I'm serious. Just letting me know if you're an academic, you're a practitioner, and you're out there and the podcast somehow creates value for you. I need to hear that. That's very useful and it helps me determine the direction that I'm going and the guests that I have on. I know you want to. I'm at americadapts at gmail.com. Go check out the website at americadapts.org. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.